Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this webinar on genetics. I'm Camilla Jansen. I'm a GP in the New Forest in Hampshire, and I work with Wessex LMC and the Wessex GP Education Trust. And we are bringing a variety of interesting topical and relevant educational webinars to you. So I hope you'll find this interesting. You can see the full offering of the upcoming events on the Wessex GP Educational Trust and the Wessex LMC websites. And if you want to book on any of these, it's possible to do so as well from the websites. Welcome today. We've got two 20 minute talks from two of the consultant clinical geneticists at Southampton Hospital. And following that, we will have a question and answer session. So I'm really excited to present Genetics Unraveled today. How many of you know that we have a regional centre of excellence for genetics on our doorstep? And if you do know that this exists, how many of you know how and when to utilise their services appropriately? And do you know about their website that has a wealth of information? So welcome Catherine Mercer. She's a consultant clinical geneticist at at Southampton Hospital and she's got a special interest in inherited cardiac conditions and she's going to do a talk for us today covering what we need to know as GPs. So thank you Catherine and welcome. Great, thank you very much for the introduction Camilla um, and you're right I'm a consultant clinical geneticist in Southampton and I'm going to talk to you about aspects of clinical genetics regarding rare disease and cardiac genetics. Great, so I'm talking to you about genetics and what you should know as a primary care physician. So this is an introductory slide and you'll be pleased to know the only one with lots of text. So a clinical geneticist is quite a rare breed um, and we're involved primarily in diagnosis of inherited conditions. We work less on the management side, but we do give advice about ongoing management. And if an individual is found to have a genetic condition, then you will subsequently know more about the prognosis and what surveillance is important. We do a lot of work giving advice on which genetic tests to do and interpretation of those tests. And we also work doing lots of uh, risk assessment. So looking at families and trying to work out how high the risk is of conditions such as breast and bowel cancer or certain cardiac conditions so that we know what the surveillance should be. We do quite a lot of work identifying people who are at risk by, being, by virtue of being in a particular family but are currently well and a lot of our work involves a bridge between um, the research community and that's because a lot of our diagnoses are right on the cusp of, of what we're only just beginning to understand. We also do quite a lot of education, so this kind of work, um, education of cardiologists and oncologists across our patch. Um, and in terms of how the uh, service is arranged, we're divided really into those caring for individuals with rare disease, uh, cardiac conditions, and then there's um, a large group of individuals working specifically on fa with families in, in which there's a cancer predisposition. So since I've been in genetics, which is about 15 years, there has been nothing short of a revolution in the way that we look at DNA. So when I first started, if you wanted to look at chromosomes, you'd look down a microscope. And if you wanted to test a gene, you would have to choose which of the 20,000 genes to look at individually. Whereas now we have much more powerful tests. We can look across all of the chromosomes as an overview relatively easily and we can also look at huge groups of genes or panels of genes and often our technology now allows us to sequence all three billion letters of genetic code rather than just looking at particular small pieces. So what's the relevance to primary care because I've told you that we work in rare disease so you might think as a as a generalist why is that relevant to me? Well the thing about rare disease is that each individual one is rare. There are, it may only be a few hundred cases um, or perhaps a couple of thousand, but there are so many different rare diseases that the incidence of a rare disease in the patient population is about one in 17. So within your practice, you will have individuals with rare disease. And the important thing to remember is that rare disease often about 80% have an underlying um, genetic or we increasingly use the word genomic cause for them. 
And what we'd like you to do in primary care is learn to recognise the zebras from the horses. And I know this is turning on its head what you're traditionally taught in medicine but in rare disease it is the uncommon presentations um, that interest us. So in terms of all the tools that we use in genetics, yes we've got all kinds of um, fancy tests but if you were to tell me that I only had one at my disposal the family history would still be what I would choose and that's because it's still incredibly insightful. We routinely take three generation family histories um, looking for related conditions in relatives and, and quite often we'll work to confirm those diagnoses rather than relying on a patient report which may or may not be accurate. But certainly this is our first port of call and some of our referrals require a family history to be filled in before we even start. I'm going to go through now some of the uh, useful flags, if you like, that you should look for as a general practitioner to think there might be an underlying genetic predisposition. As I've said, family history, incredibly important. This first picture, top right, shows a picture of the um, broadcaster, Sir David Frost, and his son, Miles Frost. And the story here is a tragic one that's in the public domain. Um, so David Frost had died a few years before this story unravels um, on a cruise and uh, the cause wasn't thought to be due to an inherited condition. His son Miles then went out on a, on a run while at the family property and when he failed to return home, his brother went to look for him and he collapsed in the drive and died from complications of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And in fact, looking back at the post-mortem, there, there were hypertrophic changes in the heart of Sir David Frost, but these hadn't been communicated to the family. And we would hope in an ideal world that they would be, so that all the close relatives of somebody with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy would be screened for signs of the condition. It's easier if there are multiple affected individuals. The, the picture bottom left is a family affected by Huntington's disease, and we have many such families um, in our caseload. And often these individuals have had Huntington's disease as part of their family history and their family culture for years and years. It's important to remember that the absence of a family history doesn't exclude there being a genetic cause. The picture remaining shows the cafeolet patches that are typical of individuals with neurofibromatosis type 1. And although this is an autosomal dominant condition, it's not that rare to have a mutation beginning in an individual such that they have a disease with a genetic basis, but without a family history. So just remember the absence doesn't exclude it being genetic. Um, I've put together these um, flags of what to look for. This is um, borrowed or stolen from Will Evans, who's a GP in Leeds, who's very interested in genomics in primary care. The first flag to look for is if there are a group of congenital anomalies. Now, one congenital anomaly is not that uncommon, but when you see a clustering of them, it's the more that there are, the more and more likely it is that there's an underlying um, gene variant that's causing this. These slides here show a midline cleft palate, um, tetralogy of fallow and hydronephrosis and uh, I saw a baby on the ward this morning with these features and the, the most likely condition in this case would be a 22q11 deletion, a syndromic association. So look at multiple congenital abnormalities plus or minus a family history and developmental delay. The next one is if you see an extreme presentation of a common condition. So cardiovascular disease is common. Multiple MIs in individuals below um, 40 and perhaps even younger is less common. Dementia, obviously really common. Dementia in the under 55s in a familial cluster, much less common and one that warrants a genetic investigation. Sometimes we have individuals with marked reactions to an infectious or a metabolic stress and that may be because they've got an underlying metabolic disorder that's unmasked by the additional stressor. In my work because I see uh, patients with a cardiovascular history, I see lots of patients with early onset um, thoracic aortic aneurysm or dissection 
and I'm interested in the people in whom they have disease under the age of 50, which is rare, or under 60 with no other risk factors such as significant hypertension. The next group of patients in which I'd like you to consider a possible underlying genetic etiology is those with neurodevelopmental delay. And GPs are often the first individuals to meet with these families as this is being uncovered. And you'll be familiar with the developmental milestones which the majority of children follow. But if you have a child who's falling behind, perhaps with a congenital anomaly, it might be sensible to begin to think would this warrant um, genetic investigation? One presentation that we take very seriously is if there's regression in a family. Um, and typically we'd investigate those children um, very promptly and we'd be looking for conditions such as leukodystrophies or um, underlying mitochondrial disorders. If you see something that doesn't quite fit or is really unusual, you might do well to think genetic. So, these pictures show somebody um, with pigmentation of the lips. So in both pictures, um, it's a similar presentation. Now, the left-hand picture, if this was associated in somebody with early onset bowel polyps, you might think of a familial cancer predisposition, whereas the right-hand one associated with atrial myxomas, which are a rare atrial benign um, tumour, that would automatically lead me to to think of a condition called Carney complex. So again, it's an unusual presentation associated with unusual other aspects um, as well, including in the family history. The last one is if you get lab results back that just aren't what you were expecting. So you look at the cholesterol in somebody um, and it's very much higher than you'd expect um, for their age or for their other um, risk uh, risk factors and that might be a way of uncovering families with familial hypercholesterolemia which is a common inherited condition and uh, we have a section of our service that looks for these families and un um, undertakes cascade genetic testing and we now have some children on statins because they've been identified at particularly high risk and it's by intervening with this treatment that we can improve their long-term outcomes. These uh, figures here just show what's called the Simon Broom criteria, looking for familial uh, hypercholesterolemia, and they're easy, easily uh, discoverable via, via a Google search. These are the widespread understood criteria for, for FH. I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about sudden adult death. This is an area that I particularly, um, I work with individuals from these families. So, we know that sadly there are some adults who die, I'm thinking about adults under the age of 40, who die relatively quickly without any prolonged antecedent um, illness and in whom the death was unexpected. And of course these will undergo a post-mortem. And in a proportion of these, we'll find a cause of death that's outside the cardiovascular system. So something like a, a ruptured berry aneurysm or, or there'll be a cause found. In a proportion, we find a cardiac cause. So this is a slide teasing out um, the 60% in which we'll find a cardiac cause in the 0 to 40s. And you can see that some of these are not genetic at all. For example, myocarditis, really early coronary artery disease, with the exception of this possibly being an FH family or perhaps congenital heart disease. But there are also a number of inherited causes, and I highlight these below, that are sometimes present as a sudden cardiac death. So these are hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is estimated to affect one in 500. ARVC, which is a right-sided um, cardiomyopathy, particularly with a predisposition to abnormal arrhythmias, which can present with um, a sudden cardiac arrest or dilated cardiomyopathy, or as I've mentioned, the aortopathy families, particularly where the part of the aorta that's affected is within the, um, within the thorax rather than being in the abdomen. But there's also families in which the postmortem is completely negative. So postmortem negative and the cause isn't identified. Now, I undertake a clinic seeing uh, individuals from these families. Because we know that in this group where there's a negative post-mortem, a proportion of these deaths will be due to inherited abnormalities of cardiac rhythm. 
And these are long QT syndrome in which there are hallmarks on the ECG, although it's quite variable and you won't always see them. Brigada, uh, in which sudden death particularly occurs at nighttime and is more common in men. And catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, which tends to present in the first two decades of life. These are autosomal dominant, they leave no trace on post-mortem, and if there's any suggestion of this, then all of the first degree relatives should be screened. So this is a typical family history. So we have here somebody who dies under the age of 40 with a post negative post-mortem, and these are the first degree relatives who are at risk. Now, if you see surviving relatives after such a tragic event, please refer them to myself or Dr. Yu, cardiologist at Southampton, and we will do the necessary workup, which includes chasing the post-mortem, seeing all the first degree relatives, undertaking any relevant genetic testing, and stratifying the subsequent risk to family members. Now, most so, uh, most genetic testing is actually under specialist services, um, but there are a couple of uh, areas of genetic testing that we do ask GPs to undertake. And these are hereditary hemochromatosis and alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So hereditary hemochromatosis, I'm sure you'll be familiar with, which is where there's progressive um, iron buildup, which leads to liver cirrhosis. Now, this is essentially an autosomal recessive adult onset condition and as we know there's a predisposition to iron overload which can lead to liver damage. Other symptoms are um, also involved including arthritis, chronic fatigue and lethargy um, and in some cases also um, cardiomyopathy and treatment. This condition is very treatable with regular venesection. So the gene that has um, abnormal variants in it, in this case, is the HFE gene, and there are two common variants that I've listed here. Now, as you see from this slide, it's pretty common to be a carrier for one or other of these. And what we're asking you to do in primary care is tease out the people who have a, a, a higher risk combination of these variants. Now, there's a full flowchart, um, just go here, a full flowchart available on our website, which guides you through. It is complicated. And if you need help with this, you can ring one of our genetic counselors who can guide you through. Um, we also do advice by letter, trying to take people through this as well, because it is, it is a complex area, but many of you are already requesting this. So I think the information, you know, I'm happy that the information is there. Now, what you'll see, if I just go back to that previous slide, is that even if you're homozygous, as this top line shows, the majority of patients are still asymptomatic. Um, but we want to pick up the ones where there is iron overload and make appropriate referral on. And, and some of those will be those homozygous patients. So if you look down the flowchart, you can see to the middle there, a homozygote um, is referred down please refer to genetics in the green in the green box but as i say do call us for support on this alpha 1 antitrypsin this is a condition in which um, there's an abnormality of a proteinase inhibitor and you get a lack of protection um, in the lungs from connective tissue being broken down and again there's a flowchart on the clinical genetics website and we do ask you to request this yourself this slide here shows the different combinations of what are called alleles, so MM, MS, SS, MZ, SZ or ZZ. And what we're trying to do in primary care is tease out those high risk ones, which you can see are at increased risk of disease to the right of this figure. So here's the flowchart, which is on the website. Again, it is tried and tested, but do call us if you need help. And in terms of what you actually need to do to request this, this is the web, if you, if you put this into your web browser, you'll come up with the Salisbury website. And these slides show that there's a tab for um, referral forms. These slides just show you where to find the referral forms on the website. And then when you get the referral form, it looks like this. Please enter your own name under referring consultant. Sometimes people don't and we get the uh, results back. 
state the condition in the reason for referral box and state if it's a diagnostic test or if you're looking to find a carrier and it's an EDTA sample that's needed. In the future you'll also be asked for something called the R number and that relates to the National Genomic Test Directory which is still um, a work in progress but which you will be hearing more about at a later date. So there's been an explosion of direct to consumer testing in recent years so you can google it and send off a saliva sample and get different kinds of results. Now the ones that are due to look at your ancestry I don't see any problem with those from a health perspective. What concerns me more is that there are some which will um, offer to look for variants in genes that are associated with disease susceptibility. Now, I've put this here, this is a picture of Pandora with her box because I think that the, uh, the problem is that this is what we're unleashing with this DTC testing. This slide shows you that some variants in genes, we used to call them mutations, are rare to the left-hand side and the effect is high. So that's these ones here. These are the ones we pick out in clinical genetics. Direct-to-consumer testing, much more commonly, not exclusively, but more commonly, picks out common variants with less of an impact. And that's why they're less helpful. I don't expect you to be able to read the text on this slide, but I want to flag to you that the Royal College of GPs and the BSGM have put together a guidance sheet about direct-to-consumer testing. And the main points they make are exercise caution. These tests are not well regulated. You may get false negatives or false positives that lead to um, inappropriate advice or information being given. We don't advise that you refer based on DTC test results alone, but if there's a family history or if there's a variant found that is in a high risk gene, it might be worth considering a referral and you can talk to us about that. Go back to basics and use the clinical and family history to assess the chance that there's a heritable disease in this family. I've just got a slide of resources here, the genetics webpage, the second resource is called Gene Reviews, and this is available open access on the web. And this is a well curated information pages about rare diseases. So if somebody with a rare disease comes into clinic, it's a place where you can um, assume that you'll get good quality information. The other uh, uh, websites I won't go through now, but are really good education resources. And just the last one is what's called the National Genomic Test Directory, which as I've said, is the work in progress and this really is for specialist care to undertake genetic tests but because they tell you which ones are eligible it gives quite a good guide as to what when you might think genetic so for example the familial aortopathy will tell you if it's under 50 and you've had an aortic dissection or aneurysm or under 60 without hypertension then think genetic so it may just give you some additional additional pointers so that's the end of my 20 minutes. I'm going to hand over to Lucy and I'll be delighted to join you for Q&A at the end of this session. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Catherine. That was a great overview. Um, and as you say, we've got Dr. Lucy Side next, who's another consultant clinical geneticist, and she's got a special interest in familial cancer. So thank you, Lucy, and over to you. Okay, thank you very much. As you can see, I'm also in the New Forest, although this is slightly earlier this year. It's not quite as sunny at the moment. And I'm not going to talk about rare diseases. Uh, I'm going to talk about cancer, which clearly isn't a rare disease. Um, but a proportion of that is, is familial. So I'm just going to give you a flavour of that today. And um, what I'm going to talk about is the two main things that we see in the Cancer Genetics Clinic. And about 40% of our referrals to the Clinical Genetics Service here in Wessex are for familial cancer or possible familial cancer. Um, and, and so I'm going to talk about hereditary breast and ovarian cancer and a bit about Lynch syndrome because there have been a couple of recent nice guidelines, so I'll touch on that. And I'm also going to talk about mainstreaming of, of, of cancer genetic testing. Um, so, uh, and how that is beginning to move into the oncology setting. Um, so I'll, I'll try and talk a little bit about that. So uh, in terms of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, about one in 400 people in the UK 
um, carry a BRCA1 or BRCA2 variant. So, and, and clearly breast cancer affects about one in eight of us, uh, ovarian cancer around one in 70 women. So, um, uh, I, I guess BRCA1 and BRCA2 variants are, are one of the commoner things that, uh, that that we see. And so you might encounter people in your practice um, who, who, who carry a variant in one of these genes. Um, so let me just... Um, and Catherine mentioned to you um, the NHS England um, testing criteria for rare diseases um, and they have included testing criteria for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer and I'll, I'll just go through these um, and, and I, what I'll point out to you is that Actually, the testing criteria are directed for living affected individuals or individuals affected with breast or ovarian cancer. So, you know, often the requests that we get in the cancer genetics clinic are, are to assess risk and to offer genetic testing to unaffected individuals. But actually, um, it is more informative if we test somebody in a family first for a BRCA1 or BRCA2 variant. So often if we receive a referral like that, we may write to you and say, actually, if there is a living affected individual in the family, please, could they be tested first? Um, and it may be more appropriate um, for, for women, particularly if they're unaffected, but have a family history of, of cancer, um, and, and particularly if they're of an age when they may be offered early breast screening, uh, to be referred to one of the family history clinics in secondary care. Um, and Catherine's already given you our website address and that, that, that contains our, our referral criteria for cancer genetics and also details of, of the family history clinics in, in secondary care. Um, and, and again, here in Southampton, uh, Ramsey Cutrus, uh, one of the breast surgeons and, and one of the um, breast care nurses run a family history clinic. Um, dealing with women particularly at, at moderately increased risk and, and talking about chemo prevention. But I'm going to focus on, on high risk women and um, for, for our purposes that's mostly women who carry a BRCA1 or BRCA2 variant. Um, and the women for whom we will offer a test include women with breast cancer under the age of 30 years, with bilateral breast cancer under the age of 50 years, with triple negative breast cancer under the age of 60 years, which seems to be particularly associated with BRCA1 variants, male breast cancer at any age. Um, and, and one that's particularly important, I think, for us is, is women with high-grade non-mucinous, and that will primarily, primarily be serous epithelial ovarian cancer at any age. Um, and uh, F is, is women with a family history. Um, and, and I don't want you to worry too much uh, about um, the, the pathology-adjusted Manchester score. We, we can work that out. Um, but again, look at our family history criteria for referral on the website. And, and, and women or, or men with Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry um, and breast cancer at any age. Because although, as I've said to you about one 400 people in the UK um, carry a variant in BRCA1 or BRCA2, there are founder gene alterations in the Jewish population. About one in 40 of them have a BRCA variant. And as I've already said, usually testing is, is carried out in an affected individual first. And, and, and Catherine was stressing to you the importance of a family history, but actually I think in cancer genetics, we are moving away from that. Um, and actually we are moving uh, towards looking at, um, as I'll illustrate in Lynch syndrome later, um, screening all uh, colorectal cancer cases for that. Um, and, and again, in, in BRCA1 and BRCA2, we're looking at testing the majority of high-grade uh, ovarian cancers. So family history is, 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 is important, but it's not the only consideration in cancer genetics. And, and having said that, so this would be a typical family history in a, a, a BRCA1 family. So um, ovarian cancer, two ovarian cancers, we'd certainly be very, very concerned that that was genetic. Um, and I've shown you here um, in the graph the, the, the penetrance of, of, of 
um, Breast and Ovarian Cancer in association with BRCA1, which is up to 80% of a lifetime risk for breast cancer and up to 60% lifetime risk uh, for ovarian cancer. And, and as I've said to you already, um, high-grade uh, epithelial ovarian cancers uh, are, are what, we're, what, what we're interested in, seem particularly to be associated with BRCA variants. Um, there is a third breast cancer susceptibility gene which we started testing for earlier this year and it's much less common than um, BRCA1 and BRCA2 but if we do ever send you a copy of a, a report um, it will include this, this third gene, PALB2, which seems to be primarily associated with breast rather than ovarian cancer. And again, you'll see the penetrance uh, for breast cancer for PALB2 gene carriers of the order of 40 to 60%. Um, and cancer susceptibility genes are dominantly inherited. So if a parent carries a gene variant, there is a 50-50 or one in two chance of, of passing it on. And that is irrespective of gender. So both men and women can pass on um, uh, variants in these genes. And, and again, I think it's important to stress, I mean, less frequently now, but we used to, to get questions as to whether we should be offering testing to men where a variant in one of these genes has been found in the family. Um, there is an increased risk of prostate cancer in association with BRCA2 more so than BRCA1 uh, uh, and also male breast cancer. And, and men may wish to know because they may wish uh, to know more about um, whether they're at risk of passing it on to their children. So what can we offer BRCA1 and BRCA2 carriers? Again, I don't want you to focus too much on this, but um, for, for, for BRCA1 and BRCA2, really the mainstay of the ovarian cancer management is to offer risk-reducing surgery after a woman has completed her family and not before uh, the age of 40 years generally. And, and I suppose the other point that I would like to make here is that really uh, there isn't any value in ovarian screening in high-risk women. Um, so we don't advocate that any longer. Uh, for breast cancer, the most important um, interventions that we have are um, uh, breast screening and, and for BRCA carriers, that begins at the age of 30 years uh, with MRI, adding in mammograms annually uh, from the age of 40 years. Um, but as, as you'll no doubt be aware, and, and there was quite a lot of publicity about this a few years ago uh, with Angelina Jolie, some women will choose to have um, risk-reducing breast surgery. And again, that's you know something that we can talk to women about in our genetic counselling. Um, and, and again, I, I, I mentioned to you that, um, that there are potentially reproductive choices that, that BRCA gene carriers uh, can make. And, and um, this is from that well-known medical journal, The Daily Mail, and it talks about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, and this is available for a number of genetic conditions, and they're listed on the HFEA website. Um, but potentially uh, we can offer an IVF type procedure, not as a, a fertility uh, treatment, but because we can um, test embryos and, and, and only transfer those that, that don't carry a gene variant uh, into a mother's womb. And, and I mentioned mainstream genetic testing, and we are beginning to do that um, in BRCA1 and BRCA2. We are beginning to move testing um, in, into the oncology clinic. And, and in, historically, we were notoriously bad at, at um, uh, picking up uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 cases in, in ovarian cancer. And it's a very significant um, issue there. Um, and, and, and this has been um, becoming more pressing because it could potentially influence treatment. And there are some newer agents called PARP inhibitors, which are particularly effective in association with uh, BRCA mutated breast and ovarian cancer. So in order to offer more patients genetic testing so that they don't have to, to wait for a, a genetics appointment, we are moving towards integrating genetic testing into oncology. Um, uh, and we have one of our genetic counselors who's, who's doing video clinics um, to, to women who are newly diagnosed um, 
uh, with the view to, to moving that gradually into to the oncology services. And then clearly we will identify more BRCA gene carriers that will inform treatment options and and as we if we pick up more more carriers there is a potentially a greater benefit in terms of of, of castigate testing for their relatives and, and and their relatives being offered appropriate management options and we in the genetic service will be targeting our services towards the the, the high-risk families um, so moving on to Lynch syndrome, and I got asked about this because uh, of a recent NICE guideline. So in fact, we think Lynch syndrome is even commoner than uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2. We think it may affect up to 100, 1 in 120 people um, in the UK population. Um, and, and this is the commonest cause of inherited colorectal cancer that we see. Um, and there are four genes that, 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 that can cause this and, and, and then another rare cause. Um, these genes are important in DNA mismatch repair. Um, and unlike BRCA, where we have to go straight to um, sequencing the entire gene, we have a screening test for Lynch syndrome that we can carry out on tumour. Um, and uh, this is most commonly immunohistochemistry and our pathologists here at UHS and actually uh, in most pathology departments uh, across the region um, offer this routinely in patients with newly diagnosed colorectal cancer. Um, and uh, the, the primary cancers in, in Lynch work can cause a number of different cancers, but the most important ones really are colorectal and um, endometrial or lining of the womb. Um, and, and this would be a typical Lynch family history. I, 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 I know I've said that we're moving away from family history, but again, just to illustrate the types of cancers that we see in families with Lynch syndrome. So bowel, endometrial, um, and, and, and rarely um, uh, transitional cell carcinoma of the ureter is another example. But I think the other thing to note about this family tree is this 85-year-old woman who is apparently unaffected, but gene carrier because um, these uh, her, both her daughter and uh, sister and father um, all have lynch related cancers and 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 so it, it's really just to say that even though these are high risk genes not everybody who develops who, who carries a, a gene variant will go on to develop cancer it's just that their risk is increased and, and that risk and again i don't want you to focus too much but this is really just to illustrate that that risk varies um, according to, to the gene that's involved. Um, and this is an online risk calculator that we use uh, in Lynch syndrome. Um, so, so the management and screening guidelines, um, uh, there were some um, guidelines published in, in GUT last year from the British Society of Gastroenterology talking about colorectal cancer screening for, for patients with a family history, including Lynch syndrome. But basically, these patients get um, a colonoscopy every two years, and the age at which we start depends upon the gene involved. Um, but um, uh, high probability of colorectal surgery being necessary, um, ovarian and endometrial screening are unproven, um, and, and we may offer risk-reducing surgery. Um, and then um, there's been a big study um, uh, called CAP2, and, and we're now doing a dose, dose escalation study called CAP3 of aspirin in Lynch syndrome, because uh, as you know, aspirin has been shown to have some protection against bowel cancer in the general population, and that seems to be particularly true in Lynch syndrome. Um, so the mainstay really of looking after these patients is uh, bowel screening and chemo prevention with aspirin. Um, and I said to you that um, we can carry out immunohistochemistry. Um, so on the right, you'll see normal expression of the proteins that is made by the gene in the tumor sample. And on the left, you'll see um, that these uh, proteins are not expressed. And that is the screening test that we are now offering uh, our colorectal cancer patients. Um, and then, um, 
and, and just to say that the, the, the genes are important in DNA repair um, and, and they come in pairs, so they, they sort of partner up. So you'll generally see loss of a pair of genes uh, rather than just one. And this is the flow chart from um, the NICE diagnostic guideline at 27. And again, I don't want you to, to get too um, wrapped up but um, uh, just to say we offer testing to all people with colorectal cancer um, using, as I say, either immunohistochemistry or MSI, but predominantly we use immunohistochemistry here. Um, and uh, that, that will look at the, the four genes. And um, if, if we see loss of um, MSH2 or MSH6 and PMS2, um, then we, we can go to, to germline testing. So those patients will be referred to us. Um, but if there's loss of MNH1, that's often sporadic within the tumour. And there are a couple of tests, which again are available at UHS that we can do. Um, uh, so the pathologist will reflexly organise that before the patients get to clinic. Um, but yes, now we are systematically offering uh, testing for Lynch syndrome, as I say, to all colorectal cancer patients. And that guideline, I think, is about 18 months old now. Um, and, and I think the more recent, um, uh, more recently, we've, we've um, in fact, at the end of October, this guideline came out from NICE looking at uh, Lynch syndrome and endometrial cancer because probably about three or four percent of, of endometrial cancer is due to Lynch syndrome. And so again, um, we are beginning to, to test all Lynch syndrome, all, all patients with endometrial cancer for, for Lynch syndrome. At least that's the recent uh, recommendation in diagnostic guidelines. Um, and, and again, there's a similar flowchart uh, for testing in endometrial cancer. Um, so again, Catherine gave you um, some uh, references. Uh, do look at our webpage. Um, there are nice guidelines for the management of uh, familial breast cancer. That's CG164 um, for, for the diagnosis of Lynch in, in colorectal and, um, uh, and um, uh, endometrial cancer, as I've said, there's a British Society Gastroenterology Guideline for Managing Familial Colorectal Cancer, including Lynch. And, and I think one of the things that you, you might find useful, certainly a lot of our CNSs who run the family history clinics use it, is the Guy's Cancer Genetics app, um, which can be helpful for you, I think, in terms of assessing risk and, and, and who is high risk and might need to come to genetics and, and, and uh, you know, particularly for breast cancer and who's at moderate risk and, and may be best served by going to one of the um, uh, nurse or, or breast unit led um, uh, family history breast clinics. Um, so I think that's all I've got to say. I will stop sharing at that point. Fantastic. Thank you very much for such a comprehensive overview, Catherine and Lucy. Um, it's obviously quite a complex area that we haven't historically been that involved in. And, and as you're saying, it's becoming more and more mainstream. The genetic testing is become more, becoming more accessible and um, I think processed a lot quicker. There was, there was a time where you had your genes looked at and it would take weeks potentially to come back. Is that, is that correct? I think that's true. I mean, certainly for cancer susceptibility, you know, when I started in 2004, it could take a, a, over a year for us to have a genetic test result. And, and now routine turnaround is, is around eight weeks. Um, so, um, you know, that's really changed things in terms of, 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 of management because we, we now can test in the acute oncology setting and it may influence treatment, particularly for ovarian cancer. Thank you. And you, and you, I've got a question um, from one of the attendees. She says that you mentioned a few Lynch syndrome mutations identified. Patients with colorectal cancer at a young age, in their 20s and 30s, for example, who've previously been tested for a genetic cause and were negative, are there any merits in repeating genetic tests in the future? Um, I, I think um, we need to review it on a case-by-case -case basis because it really depends 
upon what testing has been done um, and, and uh, you know whether there's anything else that, 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 that we can offer which you know may depend upon the genes that were tested it may depend upon the techniques that we used and, and, and you know when I think about hereditary colorectal cancer I, I, I talked about Lynch syndrome which used to be called non-polyposis colorectal cancer but there are also the polyposis syndromes which are, are, are rarer um, and um, we can certainly test for a panel of, of polyp genes that we, we couldn't previously. So um, I, I think, you know, particularly in young cases, it may well be worth revisiting. And, and you know, if they've been seen by us, we can always review the notes, uh, you know, if you send us a letter of inquiry, just to see whether there's anything else that it would be worth doing and whether it would be worth seeing them again. Thank you. And, and you mentioned with regards to referrals, whether we refer to yourselves or to the nurses, I think as GPs, there's often the genetics referral um, form that we often fill in. And on that, you, we collect or we ask the patients to collect quite a comprehensive history before they refer on to yourselves. So hopefully by doing that, that would sort of filter out where it is um, reviewed when it gets to the genetics department, is that right? So they come to us for review those questionnaires, but we will, if we feel that we haven't got uh, anything useful to offer them and they're better seen in, in secondary care, we will often write a standard letter back to you suggesting that they're referred to the local breast family history clinic. Thank you. And I wonder if you were able to showcase potentially the website. So if on Google we wanted to get up I don't know if Catherine wanted to do that you were saying that you've got your local website on on Google what would we be putting in to get the local genetics website up would it just be UHS genetics I think we've given you the link but yes I'm sure if you if you search um, if you go to the UHS website and, and search for Wessex clinical genetics service you'll find it in fact, if you just put, I've just tried it now, uh, Southampton Clinical Genetics in the in the search ribbon, it, it's the top hit. And is there criteria to look out for on information for GPs on that website? So for cancer genetics, we have put our referral criteria. Um, so there's a there is referral criteria for breast, ovarian, and. Um, uh, rectal cancer on there and then also some rarer cancers so um, yes and, and, and but uh, you know do contact us if you've got queries you know we frequently write advice by letter um, you know if we feel that actually there is something that that, that can be dealt with without an appointment so uh, you know if you've got queries then then means contact us Thank you. And you, you, Catherine, talked about the access via GPs directly to do genetic testing regarding the hemochromatosis and the alpha-1 antitrypsin. What yes. are the clinical criteria that would make us think to potentially yeah. put that test for those they're on those summary slides. Essentially, it's if you've got a clinical diagnosis or the person in front of you is a known close relative of somebody with the diagnosis or who's known to be a carrier. I think what we would say is that sometimes um, people request genetic testing at the same time as they're doing the blood, so the same time they're doing the ferritin and transferrin, and that's not the appropriate time to do it. So we don't think of genetic testing as being a useful screening tool for getting the right diagnosis. You need to make sure you've got the markers of hemochromatosis or the known family history before you send it. Okay, thank you. And I, and I recently heard a talk by your um, nurse specialist that was saying in familial hypercholesterolemia, the, the diagnosis is only 10% in the population so it is a very underdiagnosed condition is that is that right it, uh, yeah i mean i would absolutely you know they're the, the specialists they're uh, they're part of our center in that we sit in the same building but they run pretty much autonomously actually um but yes my understanding is it's under ascertained and it is treatable so um it's really important to pick those families up thank you and and dare i ask with the new COVID vaccination, they're talking about the cat vaccination incorporating RNA modification of the genes. 
which is a new way of vaccinating people. Have you got any thoughts on that, either of you? Um, I think, am I right, the Oxford one isn't? Is that right? Yeah, I'm not I the Moderna and the, um, the Pfizer vaccine, vaccines are both um, mRNA-based. I mean, my understanding is that um, the mRNA, 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 I can't even it, it, I mean, it's quite unstable. That's why it has to be kept at minus 70. Um, so uh, my understanding is that it, 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 it gets... Um, it gets translated into the, the protein uh, which stimulates the, the, the immunity, but it doesn't actually integrate into the genome. Um, but, you know, obviously it's really novel technology, isn't it? And it's only been available for a very short space of time. Mm. The, I, I agree. I, I, I just wonder if it was triggering huge alarm bells for geneticists that they, they are using something that is modifying the in in humans well I, I think you know the the, uh, the mRNA is, is is pretty unstable actually so it is likely to have a pretty short half-life um, but um, this is not my area of expertise no. sorry I've, I've sprung that on you rather and I'm just sort of interested <laughs> No, I just don't want to be held to that. <laughs> no, absolutely. That's absolutely. That's absolutely fine. I mean, there have been people on the radio saying it's going to result in, you know, inherited disease in future generations, and it will be incorporated into the germline DMA. I'm sure that's not the case, um, but like Lucy, it's not my. It's a, not my particular area of expertise. Okay, thank you. So, I mean, I think that gives us a sort of good appreciation. I think there is so much we deal with as a general practitioners on sort of day-to-day -day basis that it is difficult sort of keeping abreast all the sort of latest technologies and things and just knowing that the genetic service is there and that we can refer to you and that you've got the clinical genetics website with all the sort of um, details about the referral criteria etc is, mm. is is great um, so thank you so much for your talk today I think um, you know I certainly think genetics when I come across a rare presentation with early presentations of things certainly neurodevelopmental delay as Catherine said is something that we as GPs may be the first people to sort of have parents questioning their milestones for their children and certainly looking for regression is a big area that that I want to think about and um, and also I think as you say cancer now is not a rare disease it, it, and it's interesting you say that family history isn't the sort of main trigger to sort of look at this further and it is being looked at within the oncology clinic so I think you know it is going to become more and more on the forefront of everyone's sort of medical agenda as sort of time goes on and and the accessibility of the tests have, have improved so thank you for a round up and a, and a great presentation and um and um I just want to let all the delegates know that there are further um, webinars coming up and the next one is going to be on the 4th of December. It will be from 2 till 3 o'clock and it will cover steroid prescribing in the light of COVID and also an update of dementia patients on COVID. So it is quite a varied education programme. So thank you for joining us, everyone, and um, we will sign off there. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.